thank you for tuning into this webinar, Tried and True Tax Strategy Still Ticking. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Specialized Tax Solutions. AGH Specialized Tax Solutions is a team of professionals that helps individuals and organizations with complex tax issues like the ones we'll discuss today. Today's speakers are Bruce Stubbs and John Trowbridge. Bruce is the Vice President of AGH Specialized Tax Solutions Department with 20 years of legal and tax consulting experience. His past 15 years have been devoted to research and development tax credit services, cost segregation, and fixed asset tax issues, including the repair versus capitalization issues, also known as the repair regulations. John Trowbridge is the Senior Manager of Business Development at AGH with more than 30 years of experience in public accounting and an intensive tax background in tax planning and return preparation. John manages client relationships and assists industry teams in developing new prospects. John's expertise includes federal and international tax strategies, growth incentives, wealth transfer, and estate planning. Now, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCJA, made sweeping changes to the tax landscape. However, there are some old strategies that are still viable for companies in the right situations. Join Bruce and John as they review and update some of the options that can help make future tax payments less painful. Hello, everybody. This is Bruce Stubbs. Appreciate everybody joining us this afternoon to discuss some of the updates uh, as that have occurred with the TCJA. Uh, the R&D credit, which I'm going to touch on, you know, it's been around for a long time. We're not going to be able to go into an in-depth discussion on a lot of things, but I do want to hit some of the highlights. Um, and uh, we're going to go over the rest. Uh, then I'll hit on the cost segregation studies. And John's going to hit on the IC disc benefits as well as talk about the bonus depreciation and Section 179 expensing. And then John's also going to touch on the new opportunity of the qualified opportunity zones and their funds as they've, they've come about. So with that, let's go ahead and, and uh, touch on some of the R&D uh, items if we could, John. Go right ahead, Bruce. All right. So, uh, you know, the federal credit for the R&D did get a boost with the TCJA. Uh, historically, you might have uh, heard maybe in a prior webinar that I always used to say that it was about six and a half cents on the dollar spend uh, for the R&D credit. That's, that's what you would be getting if you're maximizing the credit calculation. And again, I can't go into all the techie calculation items. Uh, but just know that with the TCJA, it did get a boost from uh, about six and a half cents on the dollar of qualified R&D. It's now worth about 7.9 cents on the dollar. Uh, it is a general business credit, uh, dollar for dollar reduction in tax. Uh, some may have AMT limitations, but it also has a, still has a one-year carry back and 20-year carry forward. And the, the big thing about the... Uh, R&D credit, I always refer to it as the free second bite of the apple because you're already incurring these expenses, so you might as well go ahead and uh, quantify the uh, qualified spend and capture the credit. So in order to talk about the TCJA changes, I want to take just a couple seconds and talk about where we've come from with the PATH Act changes. Uh, you always have to be careful on what you wish for because with the PATH Act in 15, the credit was made permanent. Historically, it was renewed every two years. Um, 
and it, it took uh, 34 years and 16 previous extensions before they finally made it permanent. Um, what the PATH Act did not do is that the rates stayed the same and the methods to calculate the credit stayed the same. However, the big deal back in 2015 was with the options to utilize the credit. Uh, it could offset AMT and a big one uh, that came about was the ability to offset payroll taxes. So who can take care, take advantage of those? Well, as you can see, after uh, tax years beginning after 15, if you're an eligible small business, you will be able to uh, offset AMT, provided you meet the requirements down below. And the big one is if your prior three-year annual gross receipts do not exceed $50 million, then you're allowed to uh, offset your AMT. So that's been, that's been a great benefit to some as well uh, over the last couple of years. And then the second uh, big change with the PATH Act was the ability for companies to, uh, for qualified small businesses, which are gross receipts less than $5 million. And this is really designed for startup companies. So if within their first five years of operations, so this has been particularly helpful. And uh, coincidentally, I got stopped in the hall about a new prospect. This company uh, that we're talking to has about $2 million in what they believe is R&D spin, and they started in 2015. Like a lot of startup companies, uh, they're in a big NOL situation. So we're gonna look at being able to claim the credit for them uh, for their current tax year and utilize that uh, against their payroll taxes. So how big a benefit is it? Well, the good news is it can be up to $250,000 a year. It's the least of these three options, uh, either $250,000 up to, uh, or the amount of the credit for the current year, if smaller, and then if you're a C corporation, you have to jump through a couple more hoops to figure out what your carry forward would be. Uh, but either way, uh, it's, it's a good opportunity for companies that are startup companies in the first five years to offset payroll taxes. So I wanted to put these slides in because it, it allow you to go back and refer to what some of the limitations are. But the big one that I wanted to point out is, is that First, bullet, first numbered item there. So you offset your Social Security 6.2% amount is what you're offsetting. But the big deal is, is when can you use it to offset your payroll taxes? Well, it's in the first quarter after you file your tax return. So if you file your tax return in Q2, well, you're not gonna be able to utilize it until Q3. And there is a box you have to check to make sure you let them know that you're going to utilize it to offset payroll taxes. And then there's additional forms that you need to file with the return. But it's a very easy, straightforward process. So, Bruce, let me chime in and just ask a question then. On the new opportunity that you talked about with the company that started in 15, mm -hmm. has been spending a lot, mm -hmm. I assume, every year yep. on qualified uh, R&D expenditures. Yep. Normally, you could go back and... and calculate those credits and amend returns that are still in open years and take those credits, but because they didn't have any tax to offset it against, right. 
you could offset that against the payroll taxes, but you can't do that in prior years. So you're only going to be able to do that for 2019. Well, uh, payroll taxes offset by 2018 R&D credit. Right. Right. Okay. So what we're looking at doing is going back and capturing their available credits in prior years, have to amend the return because it's credit. But then because it's an election, keep mm -hmm. in mind, so they would have to make the timely election um, to be able to offset for the, the payroll taxes for the prior years. At least we'll be able to capture them and roll them forward. Can they so, carry forward the old credits yes. to when they do have some income tax? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. Yes, sure. So the big, the big benefit, uh, what's happened with the TCJA is that R&D credits are now worth about 14 14% more in value. And it's the reason is, is because of the way the calculation works. Uh, most companies that are, are profitable uh, are going to take the reduced credit election. The, what that is, is it allows you to avoid having to reduce your current year expenses by the amount of the credit. So changing the top corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, making the ASC election, or pardon me, the reduced credit election, you go from 65% to 79% benefit on the credit. As you can see from this quick example, that's about $10,500 more uh, in value in 18 versus 17. So it's worth more now to you to do a study. So that's a benefit of the TCJA. However, there are big changes coming. I want to throw this out there to get everybody, if you are claiming the R&D credit, to be thinking about this. Although this, like every other piece of legislation and tax code is subject to change, <laughs> but if it stays the way it is now, uh, beginning in tax years after 2021, all R&D expenditures must be capitalized and amortized rateably over five years if it's R&D spend here in the U.S. or 15 years if the R&D spend is uh, overseas. So that's, that's some big changes. It's probably going to cause a lot of heartburn. My opinion is that's purely a revenue enhancement uh item because everybody wanted the credit permanent well they're going to pay for it somehow so this is going to this is going to end up costing uh taxpayers you still get the credit but you have to amortize the the expenses so keep that in mind we're going to watch this see how it plays out over the next few years and uh we'll keep keep everyone updated so if you haven't been going after the r d credit think you may but you're not sure well, these are some of the big myths. Um, it's not just for the man or woman in the white lab coat. Um, and just because you're a government, have a contract with the government, you're doing R&D does not mean you don't qualify for the credit. You have to take a, take a look at the, the contract itself and we can help you with that if needed. So who does the credit apply to? Again, these are just samples. At the end of the day, if you're, developing new or improved products or processes, you should be looking at whether or not you could qualify for the credit. So some examples here. Uh, my particular favorite one is this one, the number two, the B shotgun. That was one I did for, a, it was actually a global company. 
and they had gotten a call from the uh, electric power line workers who were getting stung by bees. So they wanted a non-lethal dispersing product. They had to develop a launching, it, was like, it looked like a shotgun. They developed the shell, the casing, the chemicals, because they were a chemical manufacturer. And they uh, developed this really slick little uh, gadget to go in their trucks. So the point of this is it can be a whole host of things. So if you're like, like I said, if you're developing new improved products or processes, you should take a look at the credit. So wanted to put in the four part test so you could refer back to as well. It is a four part test. You have to satisfy all four parts, but several years ago, the uh, rule changed. Uh, it no longer had to be an uncertainty known in the industry. That was the big kicker, the big hurdle to get over. So the uncertainty is, did you have an uncertainty on how you were going to design, develop, manufacture within your own company? It no longer has to be the newest, greatest thing out there in the industry. It's uh, only the uncertainty within your four walls, so to speak. And then it's a hard science, technological in nature. It's not uh, customer satisfaction surveys and that type of stuff. It's the, the hard sciences, as you can see there in number two. So, so okay, what are the three big costs that qualify? Like I said, it's the free second bite of the apple because you're already spending wages, the supply costs used are consumed uh, in the development cycle and uh, outside contractors or test labs. You identify what you've done and put them into the three buckets and calculate your credit. And I know that's it's an oversimplification, but if you have more questions on what can qualify, reach out to me. Um, just don't have the time today with the time I'm, I've been allotted for this. So, um, so how during the product development cycle, what costs can qualify? Well, this is this chart here is just to show you that once you start talking about the idea, uh, developing the product or process, and you're focused on the technical aspects of it, that's when you should start thinking about capturing people's time uh, and costs involved all the way through until you, it passes QA and it's ready for production. So, Bruce, you've said products or processes several mm -hmm. times. So. Uh, I think we all understand products, new products or improved products. Um, but if I'm changing how I'm making a product or something in my process, that can be R&D also. It could. It could. You know, because look at Nike shoes. They've been making Nike shoes forever and they have a huge R&D credit. So if you're developing uh, to increase throughput, uh, cut waste, cut scrap, you know, the many different things. Uh, the regs even go so far as analyzing a different belt on your on your line. So it can be a whole host of process uh, enhancements, okay. new processes, etc. So basketball players like Zion Williamson from Duke, he blowing out shoes and they have to make them even yeah. stronger. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd, be, that'd be fair. So uh, with that, um, we'll go ahead and I'll turn it over, Taylor. We've got the first polling question coming up. There we go. Please make sure and select um, one of the four answers there. Uh, no right or wrong, obviously, but we want to make sure you get your CPE credit. 
following question was, will your organization potentially be pursuing R&D credits? And again, no right or wrong answer. Just want to make sure everybody gets the, their CPE if they're needing it. About 83% have voted. Looks like nobody's nobody answering any more questions. So let's uh, let's yeah. go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, we there we go. Okay, so with that, uh, I will turn it over to John to discuss uh, the uh, tax cuts and Jobs Act. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, I'm going to talk about a couple of different things uh, relating to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act now. Uh, we try as accountants not to speak in code sections, but I'm going to start talking about one that most business people know uh, and identify with, which is Code Section 179 or Section 179 Expensing. Uh, most businesses have taken advantage of this over the years, and uh, I guess I need to move on, don't I? There we go. So in talking about Section 179, I need to, to first like Bruce did, talk about what we had before. Under the prior law, as most people know, you could expense up to half million dollars of your CapEx spend. Uh, the uh, amount that you could spend in total before you started phasing that out was $2 million. Anything over $2 million that you spent during the year would dollar for dollar reduce that five hundred. So once you got to $2.5 million, you could no longer take $179 uh, that year. Um, obviously, just for "quote unquote" small businesses, Section 179 has always allowed us to expense those capex that normally you would have to depreciate over, you know, three to 39 years. So this was a great benefit. Um, it, the, the amount that you've been able to deduct has bounced around over the years. Like I said, it was 500,000 before the TCJA. Eligible property had included new and used property placed in service for business use and some real property. Um, generally, the only real property that you could take 179 on prior to uh, TCJA was considered qualified restaurant property or qualified lease leasehold improvements to uh, retail or restaurant property and other property. Um, so under TCJA, now they have changed some of those things. Effective for uh, CapEx that you acquire after September 27th, 2018, your limits have changed. You can now uh, expense up to a million dollars worth of your CapEx, and the phase out doesn't start until 2.5 million. And we have eliminated, or the the, co the, the legislation eliminated so an exclusion uh, on personal property connected with residential rental properties. So if you own a bunch of rental properties and you decide you're going to put a new refrigerator in all of those properties, you may now use Section 179 to expense those refrigerators against those rental income, against that rental income where you weren't able to before. Also, the qualified or the real estate that you're able to take 179 on now has changed. Instead of the old rules, they did away with that and just called it qualified improvement property. And that generally includes improvements to an interior portion of any non-residential real property. So not just the restaurants and, and those sort of things that, that we were limited to before. Now that is subject to certain limitations. Uh, Bruce, you, you mentioned those to me. Uh, 
those limitations on that real property. Right. That's uh, what you consider qualified improvement property or right. qualified real property. Uh, anytime you items that are not qualified for the uh, treatment are when you enlarge a building, an elevator, escalator, or the internal structural framework. Okay. Now for buildings other than rental property, now section 179 um, eligible property includes some previously ineligible building components such as HVAC, fire protection and security systems, and even roofs, right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That was one of the big changes and that applies also over in you know, just a qualified improvement property definition. That was one of the big changes. Okay. All right. Let's move on and talk about another deduction or, or expense that most taxpayers are familiar with, uh, bonus depreciation. So again, we're talking about your CapEx and uh, prior to TCJA, you know, you could take 50% of the uh, cost of any new property and that's the key. It was only new property that you're able to expense. TCJA now allows us to not only take bonus depreciation on used property, doesn't have to be the first time it's ever used in business. It can be a used property that you buy. You can take bonus depreciation, but the percentage that you can write off is now 100. So temporarily, it's been increased to 100%. It was actually scheduled under the old PATH Act from 2015 to start going down from 50% to 40% in 18, 30% this year. Well, now we've got 100% until the end of 22, after 2022, under the current law, it's scheduled to start going down 20% each year until it completely goes away. Now, we all know this is a pretty popular uh, deduction, and legislators like when taxpayers vote for them and keep them in office. So I'm guessing this will probably uh, change. But as of right now, it's scheduled to go away after 2022, uh, the phase out. One other thing um, you know, we, that we, Bruce and I have been throwing around a little bit is technically this uh, act did not include that qualified improvement property we were discussing earlier in the, 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 the property that's eligible for bonus depreciation. That was unintended. Um, they wanted to keep it or wanted to have bonus depreciation available for that qualified improvement property, but because they considered it still to be 39-year property instead of 15-year property in the hurriedly written language of this uh, bill, it technically right now is not uh, qualified for bonus depreciation. There is supposed to be a technical corrections bill that will correct this and several other things about TCJA that were uh, technically incorrect. Uh, and Bruce, didn't you tell me that there's uh, a bill that recently was proposed? Yes, yeah, Sen yeah, Senator Grassley in the Senate Finance Committee recently, last week, uh, introduced uh, legislation that would correct, uh, it was a total of 29 different provisions that had, had expired. Uh, the, uh, a bill in November of 18 also tried to get the technical correction for the QIP issue, but it was met with you know, some lukewarm 
uh, flavor. So it, it's still undecided what's going to happen with that QIP, but it was definitely an oversight uh, because in 15 and 16, it, they had created this special designation for QIP to be 15-year property, and they just blew it when they put it uh put it in the TCGAA, they just they just missed it. And now they're gonna need 60 senators to pass it. So good luck with that. So so we'll we'll see what happens. But we're definitely keeping an eye on that as well. Okay. And then the last thing on on uh, bonus depreciation I just wanted to mention, and this really is a interaction between bonus depreciation section 179, but you know most businesses, especially closely held businesses, have some auto, automobiles that they're depreciating or, or using in the business and luxury autos have always had a limitation on them. Well, with TCJA, that limitation was increased significantly. Uh, as a matter of fact, for autos placed in service after uh, September 27th of 17, um, the first year bonus and uh, complete depreciation that you can take is up to $18,000. So with that, we're going to go on to polling question number two. Has your organization decided to move forward on any uh, remodel projects due to section 179 expansion or bonus changes? Looks like we've got everybody in that's going to answer. We're going to close that poll and we are going to move on to, Bruce is going to talk with us about cost segregation study and how we can best utilize some of those section 179 expensing elections and bonus depreciation. Thank you, John. Uh, Cost segregation, you know, has been around for a long time, uh, but for those of you that may not be as familiar with it, you know, there's a there's a right way to do a cost seg study, and and because there's always the ability to identify some of the easy things when you you build or remodel a building, but often things the things that are missed uh, if you don't do a full engineering based cost seg study is uh, what what you don't see what's What's behind the walls or underground, right? Uh, especially uh, the mechanical electrical plumbing and the way you can accelerate uh, other types of costs involved with a general building. And so and that's that's what we focus on here at AGH is the engineering cost seg based approach. And most of you, I'm guessing, may be familiar with it, but just for those that may not be that are joining us, you know, the purpose is to reallocate 39-year, 27-and-a-half-year property, 27-and-a-half-year being the residential rental property, and reallocate that to the 5, 7, or 15-year property, which now, as John mentioned, you get 100% bonus treatment on. So it can provide some huge benefits, and we're going to have a couple examples here in a little bit. Uh, so what the benefits are, as you can see, it's to accelerate the deductions, reduce current tax liability and increase your cash flow. And the more costs involved, the greater the benefits, obviously. You know, studies don't create additional deductions. That's very true. It, your building is going to depreciate with or without doing a cost segregation study. But what you may be leaving on the table is a lot of, uh, a lot of money, uh, and the time value of money is definitely worth something. So that's the benefits of cost seg, especially to take advantage of now with 100% bonus depreciation. So when do you perform a study? New constructions, acquisitions, you can see anytime you're touching a building. And quite frankly, when you're spending about 
$1,000 and up, uh, the better the numbers are, the benefits uh, go up. And the more specialized the building is, you know, for example, a doctor's office, a minor emergency center, dentist's office, um, you know, manufacturing facilities, you get a, you get a lot more benefit uh, for those. And we're going to talk about the acquisitions with that used property change. That's just huge. Um, and I'm going to show you an example of a study I did a year and a half ago for someone uh, for an apartment complex, how they could have really benefited if they had, you know, if they can buy another one like it this year. Um, so when do you not do a study? Well, if you're a buyer and flipper, you're not going to hold it, you know, maybe three, five years. You know, you can always do a cost seg study. Uh, I, I do have a calculation I can run because if it's a very large number, you know, 10, 20 million dollar uh, uh, strip mall complex or something, uh, then we can take a look at that. But generally, if it's three to five years, we have uh, we don't usually recommend doing a cost seg study because of the recapture involved. So this this chart I wanted to provide because these are some of the average or, or standard ranges that we have experienced. Sorry, Bruce. that's all right. Uh, that we've experienced over the years of doing all the different types of, of projects there. Um, as you can see, apartments are a big one and also the heavy industrial manufacturing the more the more mechanical electrical plumbing that's why they're going to be at the top end hospitals minor med places they're generally in, in those higher ends of those percentages and reclasses so just to go over a couple quick examples a new construction it says current year study uh, so the study was done in the year the building was placed in service. This particular one done in 14, still 50% bonus depreciation. And you can see that um, this, sorry, this was an assisted living facility um, that was in Florida. So you can see their additional first year depreciation, first five. And then the additional tax savings on the right and the overall net present value if they were to hold that building for the full uh, 27 and a half years for this particular building versus 39 years since it's residential rental you can see you can see it provided significant benefits so the, another category if you remodel car dealers had to do go through a lot of remodeling back in 13 14 15 and you can see this example percentage reclass is about 24 percent it was smaller about 2.2 million you can see how it still had uh, over 100 almost 125 thousand dollars worth of overall net present value uh, you know if they were to hold the building for 39 years that's what they could expect to see but the big deal what i want to talk about is well or to show that same apartment complex that they bought in uh, at the end of 2016 was uh, since it, there was a lot of used property cost segs was still beneficial to them you can see there at, a, at the bottom line about $120,000 worth of benefit overall but you can see on the right the TCJA with a 100% bonus opportunity on the 5, 7 and 15 year property instead of, instead of getting an additional one year depreciation of 150 approximately 153,000 
they are getting $1.3 million of additional deductions. Huge first year tax savings. What you want to do with that additional 300 and roughly $313,000 is up to each individual taxpayer, obviously, but that can be put to many different uses. <clears throat> Excuse me. Going to paying off debt or buying something else, you know. Uh, but you can see the significant benefits that the TCJA uh, provide for used properties and their and their acquisitions. The last point about cost segregation studies is when the tangible property regs came out a handful of years ago. See, this all ties together. <laughs> uh, they required eight different categories of costs to be spelled out in a cost seg report and and be listed and number nine of course is anything else the irs decides on later on but they have these eight that need to be spelled out so if your cost seg report doesn't show that you need to ask some questions and the reason that is is because of future dispositions future repairs and maintenance analysis and things like that this is a very valuable tool to have as a starting point when you go in to try to decide whether to capitalize it or treat it as an expense, especially for these eight areas. Are we done, Bruce? Uh, that's great. Okay. I'll say. Well, let's move on to our third polling question. I guess we're going to have one more after this. Oh, okay. I guess I should, I think everybody's able to read and respond, but uh, technically I believe I was supposed to read it. So has your organization acquired, constructed, remodeled, or expanded its facilities within the past 10 years? And that's the thing about cost segregation studies. You can go back and look at uh, prior buildings that have been placed in service or remodel projects and, and uh, catch up any missed depreciation in the current tax year. Uh, it's a simple change of accounting method, doesn't raise any red flags. Uh, simple change number seven, and catch everything up in the current tax year. So yeah, it looks like about uh, everybody's sixty-five percent of our of our audience polled has either remodeled or or added facilities in the last ten years or plans to. That's great. That's great. All right. Last thing I'm going to, or one of the next things I'm going to talk about <clears throat> is IC disk. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I want to make sure we have some time for questions at the end of our uh, presentation. <clears throat> and this is not quite as applicable to as many because it is something that is beneficial to those that export products from the United States. So what is an IC disk? Uh, well, it's a international or an interest charge domestic international sales corporation, which is a mouthful and probably doesn't tell you a whole lot, but an IC disc is simply a strategy that is in the tax code. That's why we say on this slide it's IRS approved. It's right there in the tax code. It's not too good to be true, which some of my clients have thought over the years that, you know, this can't be real because, um, you know, it's too easy and it's too beneficial. In the past, it's been more beneficial, and I'll talk about what TCJA has done to some of those benefits recently, but um, it's still a good incentive, and as, as this author, Ryan Losey said, it's the last remaining export incentive uh, for U.S. exporters. 
the World Trade Organization over the years has has whittled away at it or tried to um, keep the benefits down because they felt like it was an unfair trade advantage for for U.S. exporters, but it's still still liable, still ticking. So the key elements to an IC disc, um, as I said, it's open to domestic or U.S. exporters who meet certain criteria. It's pretty easy to do. It's like I say, there, it's laid out in the statute. Um, it is a paper corporation. In other words, it's not, it really doesn't transact much business uh, or any business. It can, but in most applications that we see, it doesn't really do anything, but it serves a big purpose because it's tax exempt. The, the disc itself is a separate corporation, a C corporation that is tax exempt if it's handled correctly. And the dividends that it pays out to its owners qualify for the reduced rate, uh, reduced tax rate, uh, which is the capital gains rate. Okay, so you have to sell qualified export property. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth of what that means, but the biggest thing you need to know is it has to be something that is grown, manufactured, produced, or extracted in the U.S. for sale outside the U.S., and more than 50% of the cost, the content, has to be attributable to the U.S., so no or, or not more than 50% of the, uh, the salaries and wages that go into it or the, or the materials that go into it can be from foreign sources. DISC has to have a certain amount of its assets that are called qualified export assets at the end of each year. And uh, the main one we're going to talk about is producer loans. How does the DISC work? How do you get your tax benefits? I'm going to go through a couple of structures, but basically it the producer, the U.S. exporter, pays a commission to the DISC to be its sales arm for exports. <clears throat> the DISC then pays no tax. As we said, it's tax exempt and it pays a dividend to its shareholders, and its shareholders pay a lower tax rate, so permanent tax savings. Two different types that we see, uh, if it's a flow-through entity like an S-Corp or a partnership, again, disc pays the commission, or the exporter pays the commission to the disc. The exporter company owns the disc itself, so it's a subsidiary of the exporter. It pays its dividend back to its, back to its owner, and the owners of the U.S. exporter, the shareholders or partners, pay the lower tax rate. So instead of the highest tax rate uh, an individual might pay, say it used to be 39.6%, they would pay 23.8%. I'll talk about some more numbers here in a minute, but the other type that we see a lot of is for a C corporation, the DISC is going to be owned by the same shareholders that owned the C corporation. And so the money moves the same, or, or the money moves in the same type of way, but in a little different flow. It goes from the commission goes to the DISC, the DISC then pays no tax, pays its dividend to the owner, um, which is the same owner as the C corporation. So just to throw some numbers at you, if if a company has $4 million worth of forward trading gross receipts, spends about $2.5 million on uh, the cost of goods sold, ends up allocating costs of another half million, so they have profits, drop about 25% to the bottom line there of a million dollars. The commission that it can pay to its disc 
which is the big number that we need to focus on, um, can be the greater of 50% of export net income or 4% of the total gross receipts from sale of those exports. So as you can see in this case, half million dollars worth of commission, and that's going to result in savings depending on the, the type of structure that we talked about earlier. Um, because you've got the rate arbitrage between the federal tax that you would pay on that $500,000 if you didn't have the commission expense and the tax that you're going to pay on the dividend. This used to be a lot higher before TCJA. For TCJA, it was 39.6 that you were saving and the 23.8. So it's about 10% less than it used to be. So it used to be on that same $500,000 in commission, you'd save about $79,000. Now you only pay $29,000 for flow-through entities. C corporations, it's still a good deal because it does away with one level of tax. As you know, or most of you should know, C corporations pay two levels of tax. The corporation itself pays its income tax now at 21%. And then the, the uh, shareholders, when they receive the dividend, the distribution of profits, they pay capital gains rate. So what the DISC does, because it's tax exempt, it gives you, it, it does away with the corporate layer of tax, which is now 21% max, the 105,000 you see there on the screen. DISCs are easy to set up. Um, the, the other benefit that you could use is producer loans, as I talked about earlier. Basically, instead of paying out the dividend, you loan the money back to the company and defer the tax. Um, that can be done on a, a limited amount, and I'd be happy to talk about that more, but since I'm running low on time, I'm going to pass on through that, let you know that, uh, you know, DISCs are, as I said, relatively easy to take care of. They do have certain things that they have to do, as you can see here on the screen. Um, they do, since they're a separate entity, have their own tax return. Um, there is a small interest charge that you pay on those producer ones, but it's relatively, uh, it's very small. Um, cost to set up a disk, as you can see, six to $10,000 first time to implement it. It can be done pretty quickly and about four to $8,000 depending on, you know, your complexity of your, your uh, transactions uh, to maintain it annually. The only benefit you get from a disk is after you form the corporation and make the election for it to be a disk. So only shipments after that date uh, qualify. All right. On the polling question number four, and again, I'll be happy to ask or answer any questions you have about IC discs. Um, polling question number four, talking about whether you've implemented an IC disc. Um, I know somebody has, because I know one of our listeners does have one. Yeah, about 21% so far. John, I see a question that came in. Is, is $4 million a magic number on what you need before you get an IC disc? No, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's, it used to be we'd set a million dollars, and then we said $2 million. Um, four is probably not magic, because if you're dropping even more to the bottom line, which some, some companies, they may not have a lot of exports, but they're really profitable. Maybe I've seen 50%. Um, profit after all allocation of costs on certain products. So it just depends on what the bottom line is, but you can see that you're going to, it's going to cost you about, you know, say 10,000 to set it up and, right. you know, four or 5,000 or 6,000 a year to administer it. It needs to be better than that. Right. Um, 
but the deferral piece can be really big for some companies. It's kind of like, you know, you talk about deferring tax uh, by accelerating or, or accelerating depreciation, um, time value money. Yep. All right. So we close that up while we were talking. Good. All right. So let's move. The last thing I promised that or Bruce promised you that I would touch on very, very briefly. Um, I'm not sure how much time I got left. Looks like we got about four minutes left. I'm going to touch very briefly on qualified opportunity zones. This is something that was new in, in TCJA. Um, they're trying to incentivize uh, people and companies to invest in lower income areas. So very quickly, you can defer the tax and even reduce the tax on any capital gain if you reinvest that gain not the whole proceeds from your sale that caused the gain, but just the gain itself, you can reinvest that in a qualified opportunity zone, which was designated by each state. Um, there are limited areas where you can invest in real estate or businesses within those zones. You can defer that gain for up to 10 years. You, If you uh, leave it in there for five years, you get a 10% haircut, so you, you're, you're 10% of your gain, uh, tax on your gain goes away. Leave it another two years or a total of seven, 5% goes away, or another 5% goes away. So a ma uh, maximum 15% of that first gain, you don't pay any tax on if you leave it in there. The second gain, so let's say you invest in um, real estate in a qualified opportunity zone. You leave that money invested in that real estate for 10 years, sell it, whatever gain you have on that appreciation, no tax whatsoever if you let it hold, leave it in the qualified opportunities on investment for 10 years. So this is potentially a really good deal. It's, it's similar to like-kind exchanges, but it's not nearly as limiting because you don't have to invest the whole proceeds in order to, met, to uh, uh, defer the gain and you can get rid of some of the gain. There are some limitations. There are a lot of regulations that need to come down so we can understand exactly how to do things. But it's something you might want to think about if you have a big gain coming up. You need to invest in that Qualified Opportunity Zone uh, fund in within 180 days of the time you incur that first gain or, or realize that first gain. All right. So we are down to about two minutes. So if we have any questions, we'll entertain those right now. 